Hello, and welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview that I conducted with an author who is brought to us via Zoom from Warwick's Books in the Hood. Enjoy. Justin Sheck is a New York-based reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He covers white-collar crime crimes across four continents. He has been writing about Saudi Arabia since 2016 and is a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And this book is absolutely fantastic. Blood and Oil unfolds like a fast-paced suspense thriller with the grandiosity of a Shakespearean play. Just when you think there's no way Mohammed bin Salman can get away with any more over over malfeasance he does it's terrifying actually i found myself outwardly and verbally aghast by th- throughout much of the reading uh, the greed the scheming the power plays the amount of money that he has at his disposal is incomprehensible this is an excellent read i think it's an important book and if you haven't read it dear viewers i highly recommend it blood and oil so now let's talk about First of all, this beautiful cover, um, it's got spot gloss with, the, with the, you know, the white as the blood dripping down. It's so well done. I love holding this book. It's so pretty. I mean, they really just spared no expense to make this a gorgeous book, which I'm proud to have on my shelf. Um, at what point did you decide that your articles would need to become a full book? So uh, that's a good question. So I, you know, I, I, I'm the co-author of the book. Um, Bradley yes. Hope, my co-author, is, is also a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And he and I were based in London together, um, you know, and around 2016, you know, I've been writing about oil and energy at the time. And Saudi Arabia was sort of, a, it was like a place that never changed. For years, it was a, this inward looking insular place run by, you know, very old men, what, what many have called a gerontocracy that pumped oil, sold it and spent the money on like whatever it wanted and, it, and followed the U.S. in terms of foreign policy and like kind of didn't do anything differently. And all of a sudden in 2016, um, this prince who like sort of came out of nowhere, he was the son of the king, the king ascended in 2015, 2016, he comes out and announces that um, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is going to sell shares of its state-owned oil companies, the world's biggest company by revenue. Mm. They're going to sell them internationally. And like for a lot of people, it's like kind of like, eh, who cares? But we work at the Wall Street Journal. So the, the biggest ever stock offering is like, right. holy crap, right. this is yeah. news. So all of a sudden, um, Saudi Arabia became a place for, where from a business perspective, like we needed to really pay attention to it. And so Bradley and I are you know, like financial investigative reporters. We're not like foreign correspondents in the typical sense. So our editors uh, were very enthusiastic for us to sort of dig into this question of like, what is the oil company? And that's, that, that was our entry point. But from there, it wasn't too far to go from the oil company to the government, to the royal family, which controls the government and controls and arguably owns the country and the company, to the guy who wields power there, which is Mohammed bin Salman. And so we wrote about him for a couple of years. And, you know, after which you know, I moved back to New York, Bradley still in London. And at a certain, you know, at some point after the Jamal Khashoggi killing in 2018, we realized, you know, there's a bigger, deeper, broader, fascinating, you know, narrative to tell that is something you can't do in newspaper articles. And so 
it would sort of kind of transition yeah. that way on its own. Um, you know, I wanted to say, it's interesting to me that there's two writers and the way in which you and your co-author, Bradley Hope, let the story unfold, I think is incredibly engaging. And I think it was very clever. You established right away that the character of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, his moral depravity and his greed. And at, at one point as a reader, if I hadn't known that these, you know, these things about him already, I might've actually started to like him. Um, you can see how people would be taken with him, right? Like he has all of these plans and promises for a better tomorrow to make Saudi Arabia a better place, to loosen restrictions, you know, more rights for women and, you know, to be able to work and drive, you know, was there a lot of conversation about your strategy to reveal the character of MBS and what order you did things? No, that's, that's good to hear. I'm glad that was, that was your reaction. This is something we talked about a lot and we made, uh, a decision early on to kind of forget everything we thought we knew about Saudi Arabia and about Mohammed bin Salman and about the royal family and try to build up our knowledge from the ground up because, you know, this is a place with a kind of a rich and deep history that you can kind of read as a recreational reader and sort of take for granted. And that can, the things you assume are true can get in the way of understanding what really happened. And so we tried to sort of start with a clean slate and understand, um, who is this person and how did he become who he is? And something, you know, I, I, I learn mm -hmm. over and over again in life, but especially writing about Saudi Arabia is oftentimes, you know, I'll go into something thinking I know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. But in most situations, there, there isn't, sure. there's not a good guy or bad guy. It's just like a bunch of guys and they have the many opportunities in their lives to make the right decision or the wrong decision. And he's, he's been both and continues to be both at different times. Mm -hmm. And so often mm -hmm. the things that make someone the mm -hmm. bad guy are an attempt to be the good guy gone wrong. You know, so it's, it's a, a nuanced thing. And the way we pursued it wasn't about writing the, the biography of a bad guy or, or a hero. It was about just trying to get into who this guy was and how he's become who he is. Yeah, it's really well done. Thanks. You know, you do, you kind of slide through this emotional um, roller coaster as you're getting to know this character who at one point you're like, oh, he's got really good intentions. And then the next minute you're like, he's so depraved. He's practically unhinged. But, but let's go back a minute. So Blood and Oil, for, for me, this was an easy read. Like I said, it read like a suspense thriller. It was fast paced, startling. It's eye opening. Um, it's terrifying. It moves really quickly and it keeps you turning the pages. It's even irreverent in a lot of ways, the language that you use, which lends to the pacing and the overall tone of the book. At one point you write, and I'm going to read from page 114, it says, instead of fading into a low key life, Sultan got liposuction and cosmetic surgery and started getting the band back together to resume his life of vagabond opulence. And that's like those moments when you use a language like that, you know, getting the band back together makes it so real and readable. And it's, it appears that you take the liberty of kind of poking fun at the sheer ridiculousness of the royals and their actions, you know, wise-ass remarks, frankly, you know, getting the band back together. And the chapter, chapter titles are prime examples. Uh, there's a, a chic down, uh, sealed with a kiss, and Mr. Bonesaw are just three examples of, of chapter titles in this fantastic book. But here's my question. How does voice work when there are two authors writing a book together do you did you swap chapters does one person do the majority of the writing like how do you maintain such a consistent 
tone and voice with two writers? That's a great question. And so, you know, we, Bradley and I have both been working at the Wall Street Journal for many years. And something about the journal that is sort of, that can be frustrating, but also helpful is, is the institution sort of beats the style out of you as a writer. So when you come into the Wall Street Journal, you know, we, we all think of ourselves as like, you know, I'm not, I'm not just a journalist, I'm a writer. I'm not a reporter, I'm a writer. And the journal sort of beats that out of you. And you learn to write in a way that is, um, it can be in your own voice, but it's sort of your own version of the Wall Street mm-hmm. voice. And it, it's something that we've been doing for so long. And, and, it, that, and it really helps with collaborations because when you're working on a story with someone else, whether I take the lead writing or my reporting partner takes the lead writing, we know we're going to write it in a way that we know we can get past the several layers of editors who are, you know, the, the arbiters of what is Wall Street Journal appropriate, what is not. So after years of doing that, you kind of get into, yeah. you, you, sort of, you lose your ego when it comes to writing. And so what, the way we did it is um, we basically took turns with the chapters, whichever chapter uh, one of us did more, more of the reporting on, more of the information gathering on, that person would take the lead writing it. And in a typical instance, you know, I would write a chapter that, where I did most of the reporting and then, and then send it to Bradley and he would write through it, adding his own written information, changing whatever, and then report chapters where he did most of the reporting. Mm-hmm. He would, you know, send me send it to me, and I would start at the top and write through, add my own stuff, you know, make changes, and we'd kind of go back and forth. But it was it was very collaborative uh, in the sense that you know we weren't just taking turns, but it was it was the kind of thing that I think was only made possible because we've been you know for years in the system that like beats out the this sense of entitlement to having your own individual voice. I mean that in a good way. <laughs> but it does have a voice too. I mean, it absolutely has this kind of raw, irreverent, and hard hitting in a lot of ways. You know, I, it was very rare that I felt opinions coming through that I could really get the sense of who the writers were and your opinions. It did come through a little bit, but you know, very little. Um, so that's that's, that's fun to have. And you've been writing for the Wall Street Journal since two thousand seven, correct? Yeah, yeah, I've been been around a million years. Yeah, and yeah, that's and, a long time. That's yeah, and you know, we were definitely able to write this in a way that you know. It's maybe livelier and, and more reverent and more casual than we would in the journal. But we felt it was really important to, sure. we didn't want to write a textbook. And we didn't want to write something that felt like eating your vegetables. You know, we wanted to write something that felt. Totally. Right. And, yeah, and yeah exactly. Enjoyable. Yeah, people would want to read, not feel like they should read. Uh, and that was constantly at, at the yeah. top of our minds. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, you did a great job. I, I wanted to ask you about the title, Blood and Oil. Did, was this by any chance uh, a play on Blood and Soil, the Nazi propaganda slogan? It was not. That um, occurred to us after okay. the fact. Um, well, we, we, had, we kind of went back and forth in titles for a while uh, with us and our, and our editor, Ethichette, and um, we wanted to get at something that, that was sort of essential about, about the story. We didn't want it so much to be, you know, here's what you need to read about this guy who's important. We wanted it to be a little bit more evocative and something that would kind of give a sense of yeah. there's action, yeah. there's depth to it, there's, you know, excitement. Because I, I mean, as I sort of alluded to before, like I was never, I wasn't inherently interested in Saudi Arabia before I started kind of working on it as a reporter. To me, it was like one of many places that I just never really turned my attention to. We, want, we wanted it to appeal to people who weren't automatically going to be interested in, in Saudi Arabia or the Arab world or geopolitics. Even. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, it, it also, you know, Blood Diamonds comes to mind. I mean, it, it is a very provocative title. And the cover, too, again, is like super provocative and like, wow, okay, you know that there's going to be quite a story. So well done. You know, um, early on in the book, Machiavellian, the prince. So apparently MBS is a big fan of and is reading, uh, you know, the prince, which I thought was a little on the nose. Wouldn't you agree? I know. I mean, that was the thing. It was was a lot on the nose. It's a hard, you know, it's, 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 there's just so much uh, context to understand when, when, when he's out there saying anything like that, but his image is very important to him and, and cultivating his image has been very uh, internationally, nationally, and within the palace and within the family has been so important to him since his twenties, when he sort of started this ascent that when he go, I mean, that example in the book, he's talking to a a cleric, an extremely devout man who he's had on death row now for a few Mm -hmm. years, but this is when this man is free and Muhammad is in his twenties and to show up at this guy's house and to say you admire Machiavelli is, you know, it it could be read as the sort of um, sincere, uh, mistaken, you know, ramblings of a, of, a, of a callow young man, or can be seen as someone who is very calculating and strategic and telling this person in an obtuse but upfront way, like, this is how I plan to do things, you know, be afraid. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's one or a little bit of both, but um, there's always, always uh, an eye toward how what he says is going to seem to his audience. Absolutely. Yeah. I got that sense throughout the book, you know, and it comes, it becomes very clear that MBS is, is unhinged and exceptionally dangerous. I don't think he's stupid, but by the same token, I didn't really think he was exactly smart either. He's rich, he's scheming, he's cunning, and he's unscrupulous. He maneuvers well. And I mean, I think Machiavelli came into it. He, he paid a lot of attention. It panned out well for him, but the thing about it that it's so galling is everyone seems to say yes to him um, over and over again. Like, for example, everyone, you know, he's talking about creating this utopian society. And by the way, I'm going to have you read, and I know you have the book there ready, but he's talking about um, engineering a perfect full moon that would rise over his new city every night. Um, do you mind reading from page 134? Sure, yeah. And I, and I will say, just, just to bounce off what you were saying. I don't know that I agree he's unhinged because, you know, to contextualize it, when you're someone, when you grow up um, with people constantly saying yes to you, I think it changes your, uh, your judgment about what's doable, like what's possible and how people Mm -hmm. should react when you do things. So Mm -hmm. I, I think that oftentimes there's an inward logic to what he does and it might not be the right logic, but it's not, it's where you see him do something rash. Oftentimes he's done things that turned out to be mistakes or worse. It turned out to have horrible consequences, but you can, if you sort of dig deep enough, you can see why he made decisions. He's very deliberative and tends to make decisions with a lot of preparation. They then can go horribly wrong sometimes, but it's rare that you see him lose his temper and, and do something as a result of, of rashness. So it's, it's a nuance uh, with maybe a, mm. a distinction that, that uh, without difference um, when it comes to the consequences. But yeah, yeah I, I will read and then we can continue. 
Okay, so I'm starting okay. with through board meetings, correct? Please. Okay. Through board meetings over the course of months, Muhammad threw seemingly endless ideas at the consultants. Neom needed flying cars and a multi-billion dollar bridge to Egypt. Was it possible to create an artificial full moon that would rise each night? And about that beach in the resort area, I want the sand to glow, Muhammad told one of the planners. Commercial space travel would be a good industry to bring to the city. Also farmers markets. Neom had to pioneer and lead all sectors of the future, Muhammad told the Saudis and Westerners around his boardroom table. It would have the world's highest per capita GDP and an unrivaled work-life balance. Some of his requests were seemingly contradictory. The Saudi government was going to spend $500 billion on Neom, but the project would not be built on subsidy, the board declared. Neom will ensure equality and fairness were all, said Rumayan, the sovereign wealth fund chief, at one meeting before discussing how Neom would have full-time surveillance of everyone within its borders, so criminals could be caught instantaneously and, later, how only Saudis with certain qualifications would be allowed in. Latham & Watkins, a U.S. law firm that agreed to be Neom's legal partner, identified problems in the existing Saudi legal system and suggested fixing them by implementing a new structure in which every judge was appointed by and reported to Muhammad. The firm declined to comment on its work when the Wall Street Journal reported on it. In more than 2,000 pages of planning documents, the consultants came up with an answer for everything. Neom, BCG declared, could stop up to $100 billion in annual economic leakage. The prince's notion of livability, formerly a matter of personal preference, could now be quantified through a groundbreaking new system that McKinsey invented specifically for Neom. It was based on empirical evidence and leveraging big data to measure citizen satisfaction, happiness, and engagement, the consultants wrote in explanation of how they had devised a way to objectively measure a city's pleasantness. Neom, they promised in presentations to their Saudi clients, would be the most pleasant of them all. The consultants turned Neom's apparent weaknesses into strengths. The region might not have any fresh water, but it had unlimited access to salt water and become a global water champion by developing desalination plants. And perhaps, BCG suggested, NASA would partner in developing the Prince's artificial moon, which would be the biggest in the world. After four workshops over a series of months, the board and its consultants arrived at a vision statement for the project. The land of the future, where the greatest minds and best talents are empowered to embody pioneering ideas and exceed boundaries in a world inspired by imagination. It was a masterclass by the consultants in telling an ambitious prince exactly what he wanted to hear. After visiting the cruise ship full of consultants off Neom's coast, Masayoshi told Maham that he was a visionary and agreed to have SoftBank partner on one of Neom's most ambitious projects. A new way of life from birth to death, reaching genetic mutations to increase human strength and IQ, as the consultants later described it. Speaking later, Masayoshi referred to Mohammed bin Salman as the Bedouin Steve Jobs. So do you want me to talk a little bit about, about, about where that what that says? Yes. So yes. This, this is a great, um, this is a really important piece of the book, I think. It, it's a project called Neom that Mohammed bin Salman announced. Um, and it's a, a $500 billion like, city-state he wants to build from scratch on Saudi Arabia's west coast, which is an area that's desert, very sparsely populated, very beautiful across the Red Sea from Egypt. And the idea is to have a city um, where it, it attracts people from all over the world, tech companies, uh, it'll have an economy built on innovation, it'll have flying robot taxis, uh, an island with robot dinosaurs for people to, to visit on vacation. 
um, the, the people who live there now who are largely um, for Saudi Arabia, poor, um, semi-nomadic people, you know, tribal people who've lived there for generations, we moved out and only allowed in if they meet certain ed educational requirements. Um, it sounds like this insane kind of pie in the sky idea, but it knits together a lot of strands that, that are really, I, I think, deeply important and serious in, in understanding what this guy is doing. So, and, and, and the pitfalls. Um, yeah. So, you know, he, in 2015, his father becomes king. And Mohammed bin Salman goes from someone who's basically a nobody to being extremely powerful. And his father makes him the day-to-day -day ruler of the kingdom and puts him in charge of the military and of figuring out how Saudi Arabia is going to get out of its reliance on oil because, you know, eventually either the oil will run out or the demand for the oil is going to run out and the kingdom is going to be without that. How do you get out of your reliance on oil and become a functional, normal, first world, prosperous economy as you know, we have in, in, in the US and, and in Europe? And that's a very hard question. And no country's ever done that before successfully. So, so what Mohammed bin Salman realizes, yeah, and, and to go back a little bit, Saudi Arabia, the modern kingdom was founded about a century ago by Mohammed bin Salman's grandfather. He, uh, in concert with a group of very conservative clerics who, who had fighters, they together conquered most of the Arabian Peninsula, the country we now know as Saudi Arabia. Since the kingdom's founder died, um, he, when he died, he handed down the crown to a, a son. And he had many, he had dozens of sons by many wives. Since then, for over 50 years, the crown has passed from brother to brother to brother. And the oldest brother who is qualified to be king gets the crown. So this yeah. has been going on for so long that by the time Salman, Mohammed bin Salman's father, and you know, one of the younger sons of, of the founder gets the throne, uh, it's, it's, this is 2015, he's almost 80 years old, and it's clear that the, throne, the crown is going to have to go down to the next generation at some point. So throughout this time of, of these old men running yeah. Saudi Arabia, they had always maintained this alliance with, with these very conservative clerics because they felt that that's what gave them legitimacy as absolute monarchs in the eyes of the Saudi people. Um, this is the, the homeland of Mecca and Medina, the two earliest sites in Islam. And these, the very conservative religious establishment says these are our rulers. They, they should be respected. That was their mandate to rule. What Mohammed bin Salman realizes is that now over 60% of the Saudi population is under the age of 30. It's a country that has the highest rate of smartphone usage in the world and the highest social media saturation in the world. So he sees there are millions of young people who have nothing to do all day because there's not really a functional economy. They're just sitting around looking at Instagram and seeing that their peers in other wealthy countries are going to the movies. They're going to concerts. They're going on dates with members of the opposite sex. Women are driving. They can wear whatever they want to wear. They can get all sorts of different kinds of jobs when they get out of university. They can start their own businesses as entrepreneurism. None of these things are allowed in Saudi Arabia. It's this ossified kingdom where there's so little opportunity, both economically, and people have money because it's a wealth country, but to start a business is very hard. The courts are opaque. He sees a place where he believes his, the mandate, the, the legitimacy of the royal family is going to have to come from a different source other than the religious establishment. It's going to have to come from the youth. And to do that, he needs to create a different kind of country. Um, and 
he realizes that it's going to be very, very hard from Riyadh, the capital, in the middle of this desert country, which is a very conservative place. It's like an, an, an impossible task to change everything all at once. So he sees Neom as this place where he can start from scratch and he can build this self-contained walled, if not literally walled, then walled by drone security forces, self-contained place with its own governance. It all reports up to him. It will be his vision of what Saudi Arabia could be. And from there, that could spread to the rest of the country. And, you know, he, he's not like our president or he's not like an American president who sees a four-year horizon. Um, he envisions, you know, his father is, is in his 80s now. And, and one day when his father dies, Mohammed bin Salman will be king. He's 35 years old. He could be king for 50 years. So he's looking decades out. So he sees Neom as his opportunity mm-hmm. to create a vision of what Saudi Arabia could be. Now, there's a logic to that. The thing is, and this is a, a, a long-standing problem in Saudi Arabia, it's something that has driven Mohammed bin Salman crazy, but also something that he's fallen prey to. The country has not had universities for that long. It's also a small country. It has a lot of money, but it's got 30 million people. It's like the size of, you know, and 20, only 20 million are Saudi. The rest are, are foreign workers. It's like a country like, effectively the size of like Mexico City. You know, it's not, it doesn't have a huge population. It doesn't have a really well-established higher education system. So there's limited capacity in terms of like the people you could bring in to build and to plan and to right. execute such a giant project. So, and this has been true with everything in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia, roads, infrastructure, the medical system. So he's relying on foreign consultants to come up with a plan. McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, which is now called BCG, a couple of others. And so, and McKinsey has, you know, made billions of dollars in Saudi Arabia. So if you're McKinsey and you have this prince who says, hey, I want to spend $500 billion on this project, uh, building a city in a place that doesn't have any water. What do you think? It would be foolish to say it's a bad idea yeah. because that's, that's the, the biggest consultant. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's this tendency for these people he pays to tell him yes to everything. And so, you know, to, to be fair to him, he went out and, and tried to hire the experts, the best possible planners. And then, but when he says to them, like, do you think I should have a robot moon? And they say, yes. I mean, he, he did, he is asking the people who are supposedly the best at this. They're just, they just don't want to tell him no. So it's, a, he's in a difficult position where it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. um, I mean, perhaps he, he, he should it sounds crazy, but you could sort of see how he arrived here. Is what I'm trying to say. Do you, do you think in some cases he like he throws in these these crazy things like a, a robot moon just to see if these are true yes men or if anyone might push back on him? I mean, it's it's a great question. It's possible in some instances he may have done that, but with Neom, I mean, a lot of this is I think he sees it as he has effectively unlimited money to spend on it, and any idea he comes up with, if he thinks that would be cool. Why wouldn't other people think that'd be cool? So I, I, you know, I haven't really seen evidence of him doing that. Because right. I mean, the, the, a lot of this chapter was based on these thousands of pages of, of like internal planning documents we got that have records of meetings with him and his people and the consultants. And you see this thing take shape where there was nobody there who was like, well, you know, like maybe it would be better to like fix the regular court system first uh, before we, you know, create a new city. You know, nobody was telling him like, right to take baby steps. I, I think they would be afraid to tell this man to take baby steps. You know, I mean, he's moving very quickly. I mean, 
and all, all of the subtle things that he did worked well together to get him on the main stage. I mean, people all over the world were clamoring to be in his presence from entertainers of, to technology leaders, even Donald Trump. Um, in 2016, you report M MBS invests $3.5 billion in Uber. He put together a $2 trillion investment fund, a strategy that I, I think absolutely put him on the main stage and you know everything wa everyone wanted a piece of him at, at one point I felt a little sorry for him to, <laughs> to be honest with you but I do you think he really expected foreign investors to start pouring money into his kingdom or do you think he just knew that this was a publicity stunt to get him on the main stage and to get people paying attention so that he was legitimate in the eyes of his own kingdom that's such a good question and and like yes and yes I think you know the key to his plan working is getting people from other countries to pour money into Saudi Arabia. There's no evidence that anyone has any interest in doing that now. But also, um, right. it's very important for him to be seen as doing um, kingly things, as, as one person in this world put it to me. That, um, he's not, unlike the brothers, you know, his father and his father's generation, it was sort of like one old man to the next to get the throne. It was never clear who in the third generation, who in his generation was going to be next to the throne. So he's had to show for a number of years that he can do things that make him worthy of being a king and show that internationally and domestically most important mm -hmm. to his family. And some of those are things like, you know, very harshly cracking down on, on, on family members who might be a threat. But other things are like the war he started in Yemen or yeah. showing up on the world stage as, as an investor who is, is now you know, the world's biggest venture capital investor. And, you know, in the section we read, this guy Ma Masa, uh, who referred to as Masayoshi San, he's the head of SoftBank, which is a big tech investment company. And um, we say, you know, he, he, he said that uh, Steve Jobs, uh, he said that Mohammed bin Salman was the Bedouin Steve Jobs. And this is the, the kind of thing that people would say to him, people would say publicly, but, and, and you could see, you know, he's someone, who, and he's talked um, with, with foreigners about how his father, you know, King Salman told him, you know, read books, read Steve Jobs' autobiography, read Bill Gates's books, and, and you'll get an understanding of how they think. And I think he's been told for so long that he's someone who has accomplished a lot yeah. that it's hard to, to believe that maybe, you know, he's not an expert in everything. And to be clear, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, for all his strengths and weaknesses and whatever, you know, kind of like built the company and, and like from scratch and started a lot of things. Whereas Mohammed bin Salman, what, I mean, He's gotten to where he is by being the most effective and ruthless and smart and aggressive member of a small subset of the Saudi royal family, which is not nothing. It was a very hard thing to do, but it's not those skills aren't necessarily transferable to any other thing in, in life. So just because he's good at what, sure. and it's like one of the problems with monarchy or arguably with democracy, you know, just because you're good at getting elected doesn't mean you're good at governing. And just because he was good at doing what it took to become powerful in his family doesn't mean he is necessarily good at any of the other things he needs to be good at to lead. Yeah. Speaking of getting elected, but not necessarily being a good leader, despite the fact that Trump ran on an anti-Muslim campaign, Saudi Arabia is one of the first places that he visited as a new president. And in my opinion, it was a little gross. I mean, the way they pandered to Trump's need to feel important, MBS really had his number. I mean, how he ingratiated himself to him and 
you know, that that visit is so well written and you did a great job. But I have to ask you, do you think the Trump administration contributed to the rise of MBS? Yeah, I mean, the, certainly there's, there's a symbiotic relationship. But I think I think what's clear in our book is you know, that was first that was the first foreign visit Trump did as president. And I think Trump and Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner um, saw this as uh, a powerful statement to make as a new type of president who is going to, you know, take a new approach to geopolitics. In fact, mm-hmm. Mohammed bin Salman got much more out of that visit than Donald Trump did and than America did. Um, to, to sort of set the stage here, the, the Saudi-U.S. alliance goes back decades and it was based essentially on, you know, Saudi, Saudi Arabia produces oil, sells it without interruption. The U.S. consumes the oil and Saudi Arabia contributes to stability in the Middle East. And that was the essence of the relationship. But what's happened since 2014 um, with the rise of fracking in the U.S., the U.S. is a net exporter of oil. It's not relying on Saudi oil anymore. So the foundation for that relationship has has dissolved, number one. Number two, under Obama, uh, the Iran deal was deeply upsetting to Saudi Arabia. Iran is Saudi Arabia's chief antagonist. And for... Saudi Arabia's most important foreign ally, the U.S., to make a deal with Iran was seen as, as a betrayal. And that was something that, that Mohammed bin Salman really couldn't get past. It, it, was, it, was a real, um, it was a real problem for him. So mm-hmm. what happens in 2017, Trump, Trump's elected, and he has the opportunity to revive the U.S. relationship and to be seen publicly as the one who revived it. And rather than it being this old relationship based on oil, where you had sort of these people deep in the U.S. state and intelligence departments and deep in the Saudi bureaucracy having a years-long relationship, it was going to be the new guys. It was going to be Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner. And to be publicly seen in Saudi Arabia as the person who revived that and to be seen within the royal family as, as yeah. the person who revived that was hugely important for him getting a mandate to be seen as legitimate, as, as the legitimate next ruler. So. What he does with the visit yeah. is you know, he has this, you know, he, he's a good planner. I mean, he doesn't always make the right plans. The plans don't always work out, but he has a very loyal group of people working for him. And on the Saudi side, they were extremely organized in planning the visit. And on the Trump side, there, there was like mayhem. You know, they, the, the Trump yeah. they didn't put yeah. people in yeah. charge of, of, of details of the visit. And they had a, a, volu- we were, you know, a volunteer advance man was, was in charge of like figuring out essential pieces of who's going to be doing what. And in the end, you know, Trump showed up in Saudi Arabia and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, did a great job of flattering him and made him feel special and came out of it looking like he was now in control of this very important relationship. So it was hugely important for Mohammed bin Salman. I don't think Trump really got much out of it. Trump could have ignored him and still had the Saudi alliance. Yeah, I got that. That's the same sense I got, you know, had that not happened, I, I want wonder if he would have been able to, and he probably would have. He was so smart in the way he removed key people to get out of his way. He made sure they weren't able to have key meetings. You know, uh, he, every single step was planned and it's still working. You know, I, I got to ask you how long, I mean, it just seems like there's so much more information constantly coming up and things that are happening inexplicably. Like at what point do you decide, okay, we have to stop writing and actually publish this book and put it on the shelf? 
That's like, how much were you no. still writing? Like, the epilogue, for example, has COVID in 2020 in it. I know. No, it's, I mean, it's such a good question. Like, we, I mean, I, if it was up to me and Bradley, we'd probably still be writing it, you know, but our, our publisher gave us a hard deadline. And, um, and, at fir- and at first it was frustrating, but eventually you get to the point where, yeah, like, you know, the, the story's not going to end. Uh, or if it does end, it'll be a shock. You know, right. we don't expect it to end anytime soon. And so, you know, we had a hard deadline and kept pushing that deadline until our editor, you know, became extraordinarily stressed out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it ends in COVID times. It ends with him, you know, again, we talk about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. It ends with him purposely tanking the price of oil and putting a bunch of fracking companies out of business, which shows you how much, you know, Trump has gotten out of the, right. out of the relationship. Right. Did you ever fear for your life in writing this story about someone who, who was known, a known killer? I mean, I feared for my life driving in Saudi Arabia because it is, has the world's highest road fatality rate for really good reasons. Like, road safety is a problem, but that, that, that was it. I mean, that was the only thing. Like, um, I mean, the, the flip of dance, which is to say, like, no. Uh, not any more than any, anywhere else other than road safety, because, and, and this might be rationalizing, but there's not any, there's not a history of, of Saudi Arabia taking violent action against foreigners and against foreign journalists, and especially against American journalists. And, and you know, I think the obvious reason to ask the question, yeah, discuss it with my wife and editors and, and everyone else, is what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, who was a, uh, writing a, a, as an opinion writer for the Washington Post when he was murdered by people working for Mohammed bin Salman in, in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, famously, and dismembered in, in this horrible event. But he's but, a Saudi. Yeah, exactly. And I think as, as we show in the book, not only was he a Saudi, he was a Saudi who was deeply enmeshed with the royal court and sort of of the royal court for decades and worked for uh, numerous Saudi embassies mm-hmm. and worked directly for the head of Saudi intelligence for a long time. And was sort of this um, a loyal critic on and off for a long time, but he was sort of one of them. And when he started writing things that yeah. were critical of Mohammed bin Salman, I think it was more seen as treason rather than it wasn't seen as someone. It wasn't like a, a foreigner criticizing me in America. It was it was treason by one of us, um, which is not to make excuses for what happened there, but it's, mm. it, I didn't see it as in any way relating to my situation and to Bradley's situation. And so, right. you know, personal. yeah, it's a, you, you, there's always risks. And, and honestly, like my biggest risk in any, any, you know, I've taken a lot of reporting trips to like less than safe places. And, and my biggest um, concern is always, you know, road safety. Like I, I, I rarely worry about, you know, what actually like someone deciding because the stakes are so high for a, a leader in a foreign country to do anything to an American. You know, it's not, it very rarely happens. So I, I didn't worry about it, but I'm not saying... Yeah. I don't know if I should have worried about it, but, you know, we've never had any concern and, and I, I still don't. We still write about Saudi Arabia. What if you were given an opportunity to interview MBS? Well, I mean, we've, it's not a secret, you know, while working for the journal, we, I spent a bunch of time with him in Saudi Arabia and in the U.S. And we, we've, you know, met face to face. And I mean, honestly, like, if, and I, I welcome another opportunity to meet face to face. You know, he, he's someone who... I feel like I'd be better prepared to interview now than, you know, three years ago. Uh, I know more when, about him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know more about him. And also, you know, he, he's very young. And when, when we met 
mm-hmm. in, in Saudi in 2017, um, he had a lot of talking points and it was very hard to get him off the talking points. And, and he, um, you know, was pretty skilled at, you know, receiving a question and then saying whatever he wanted to say, not necessarily answering it. And I think, you know, knowing more and him knowing more and, and you know, having learned from some of his mistakes I think there would be a lot more opportunity to uh, kind of try to get him to look inward a little bit, you know? Hmm. Yeah, you may be right. Do you, would you even pretend to guess, you know, what the future of Saudi Arabia looks like um, with him at the helm? Yeah, well, look, so, so I'll get to that. So, so to get back to what we were saying before, you know, in, in his, in his attempt to kind of, remake the the power base of the royal family um from the religious establishment to to the youth of the country he what he's doing is is he's kind of working toward his like kind of singular goal which is making sure that his family maintains the monarchy and making sure that he's the next monarch and you know so he views what happens in in the medium-term future in saudi arabia as this sort of existential question of of does his family continue to rule? So with that in mind, you know, everything he's done, the things that, you know, seem mm-hmm. contradictory, like on the one hand, he's allowed women to drive and, and created great social freedom and you can go to the movies and concerts. On the other hand, he's cracked down much in much harsher ways and dissidents than his predecessors have. And he, he allows no political criticism. Um, these things seem contradictory, but really they're all in service yeah. of, of making, you know, solidifying his power, solidifying his family's power. And so to that end, I think, you know, you, I don't expect there to be in any time soon more political freedom. Um, I do expect there to be an increasing pushes to get, you know, tourism and make it more of a, of a place where Westerners feel comfortable. But the big question is, can the Saudi economy be remade? Because, you know, I think like five years ago, the question was, you know, what are they going to do when the oil runs out in 100 years? And now the question is more like, is the demand for oil going to run out in like 20 years? And if so, is, is, you know, is the price of oil going to drop so far that they're in a much shorter time frame? So the question is, if he can yeah. convince foreign companies that Saudi Arabia is a place where you want to be based and want to move your workers, I mean, it's a hard sell because, again, it's not a very big country. But if they can somehow become a regional hub for global companies to come and create a, a real functioning economy, they, they don't really meaningfully tax people, which is which when you think about it is, you know, how do you have a functional government if, you know, if oil revenue goes way down, where, where like people and companies don't really pay meaningful taxes? It, it, it's it's a, a major issue. Then how do you tax people when you're an absolute monarchy? You know, that didn't go over well in, in the U.S., uh, you know, 250 years ago. So you've got you have all these questions. So I, I, I have no idea, like, what it's going to look like with the economic transformation. I have no idea if that's going to work, but I think in the short term, I, I would expect to see a place with like very, very limited political freedom and increasing social freedom. Yeah. It's really interesting. The dichotomy of those two things, you know, as people are gaining more freedom in one area and losing them in the other, one of the things that happened in the book, and we're, we're almost out of time here, but there was, you know, one woman who was arrested because she was, asking for more freedoms for women. The very thing that he's trying to do, but he arrests her because he doesn't want anyone to think it was her idea or she influenced him. He wants to take full credit for the changes that are happening in Saudi Arabia. And I think that speaks a lot to who he is and you know what we're going to see in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think he needs to- Excellent needs, book. Yeah, thanks. 
Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was saying, no, I think he, he needs to, he feels that he needs, he, he has to be seen as the one who makes the decision. And I think it's very important for him not to be seen as, as being pressured to do something. Um, not just to take credit for the decisions, but also mm-hmm. if you set a precedent where people can pressure you into doing things, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's not helpful for him. And beyond that, there, I think he believes, right. uh, and the Royal Court believes that some of these dissidents are uh, somehow being funded by Qatar, which is, you know, a, a big regional uh, rival. And the idea that, there, that any perception that, that a, a, a rival country could somehow foment discontent, that could force him to change what he wants to do, it would be a sign of weakness. So it's very important that he not show absolutely. weakness. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Well, congratulations, Blood and Oil. Wonderful book. I, I really enjoyed it. I look forward to reading more from you. Do you have any other books coming up? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm still like kind of uh, hungover from, from this one, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll come up with something, something soon. Yeah. Well, I, I hope you do. Um, I would say that um, this book is an award winner. And Julie, thank you for allowing me this opportunity to have this conversation with Justin Sheck. Again, people, amazing. And, you know, giving a shout out to Bradley Hope as well, who couldn't be here with us today. Thank you. Blood thank and you oil. So and thank you to Warwick's as well. Uh, this has been great. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a Warwick's sponsored interview. Until next time, stay safe.